Welcome back to the Big Amateurs of Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And if you want to reach out to me, you can shoot me an email at uh, rich at cagerredux.com. That's R-I-C-H at C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right, today is March 29th, 2023, and I am following up on my episode from uh, March 26th, where I talked about this hearing that was coming up in the Energy and Commerce Subcommittee on Innovation, Data, and Commerce. That hearing was held this morning. It went from about uh, 10.30 this morning till about 1.15-ish, and I listened to it. I had prepared for it. I had read all of the witness statements and bios and all that, although I think there's some information that was referred to in the hearing that's not publicly available on the subcommittee website. I'll be looking forward to that. But I wanted to just get a quick episode up to give you my present sense impressions. I'm probably going to come back and talk about this hearing in more detail and take it uh, witness by witness, theme by theme, because I think it's really important. And I'll just say this. Everything I predicted about this hearing four days ago was absolutely right. This was essentially a replay of the September 30th, 2021 hearing tactically in terms of how the witness list was structured, in terms of uh, how the committee members sort of divided and conquered their issues. And it was scripted. You know, like all of these hearings, this was scripted and this was orchestrated by some of the most powerful lobbying firms in American history. And that issue hasn't seen the light of day. I've been writing and talking about this since early 2019, when I first saw what was happening behind the scenes in Congress and also in the Austin litigation and this campaign to eliminate the athletes' rights movement, when the NCAA and Power Five went on offense and tried to eliminate all these external regulatory threats. And my advocacy has only gained traction in a very small athletes' rights community. It's partially my fault because I, I haven't marketed my podcast or my blog before it. And I really wasn't thinking that I was going to be a, a public-facing advocate. I had some other projects that I wanted to work on that were more on the kind of the academic off the radar screen type, but I'm moving more towards getting some of my stuff out where more people can see it. And I, I really think that this is the time for people of good faith to look at the truth of the campaign that the NCAA and Power Five are waging and how disingenuous it has been and how it is targeted specifically to only two sports, Power Five football and Power Five men's basketball. And there is an obvious racialized component of that business model and the targeting in this lobbying campaign, there was only one person at this hearing today that spoke on those terms. And that was uh, Representative Yvette Clark, uh, a Democrat from New York. The equity themes really didn't resonate through the witnesses. And that's no surprise because five of the witnesses were NCAA Power 5 friendly. And the athlete advocate had kind of a more nuanced approach through the lens of football 
interest. So I'm just going to go through the witness list. And this was the order in which the witnesses testified. The first witness was Jennifer Heppel, who was the commissioner of the Patriot League. And the Patriot League is a unique product. They've really focused on the academic mission. There was a point in time when they built their model around not offering athletic scholarships, much like the Ivy League. They now offer athletic scholarships. And, you know, she's a thoughtful spokesperson, and I think she cares about the issues. The problem is that the Patriot League is irrelevant in this conversation. And that theme actually came through when there were questions about revenue sharing, for example. Ms. Heppel said what she had to say is that issue is not relevant to us because we don't have a product that generates revenue. <laughs> so some of her advocacy, I think, needs to be viewed in that context. But it just goes to show, I talked about this in the, that episode, that last episode on March 26th, and, and that is that the lobbyists, and the Republicans on these committees, and, and this one's chaired by Gus Billorakis, and I talked about him at length in that last episode, but they want to conflate the interests of the big-time sports products with all these downstream interests that really don't have a dog in this race. So why do you do that? Because you don't want to focus on the truth of the business model, the truth of the Power Five's control over this entire legislative campaign and the truth of the fact that they don't really give a damn about what happens downstream. They just want to preserve their regulatory authority and their business model and their big fat paychecks. And the only classes of athletes that are a threat to that status quo are uh, Power 5 football and Power 5 men's basketball players. So you have this misdirection going, and then that was channeled through the second witness, Dr. Mikola Abdullah, who is the president of Virginia State University, a Division II school. It's an HBCU. Dr. Abdullah is African-American. So they're trying to bring in Division II interests to try to make the case that a Division II HBCU has some skin in this game, and they don't. They have very little skin in the game because they operate so far out of the products that matter, and that is Power 5 football and men's basketball, that they've just been struggling to even get on the ANCA's radar screen. And he, he talked about that a little bit. And he said in his when he was doing his opening statement that the HBCUs have been marginalized. And he's right about that. That's the conversation that we should be having if you're going to call a witness from an HBCU in Division Two, But they, he then pivoted and tried to make some, I think, really difficult to connect the dots case that somehow athletes getting money in Power 5 football, men's basketball, or athletes being employees, is going to have any impact on his institution or his athletes. I just don't think you can make that case for a Division II HBCU. The third witness, Trey Burton. He is a former University of Florida football player. Then he played in the NFL. He's in his early 30s. And you have to remember that Bill Arrakis is from Florida. And a lot of the representatives on this committee were from Florida. I'm going to talk about the attendance and what the balance was party-wise. And uh, Mr. Burton's a very appealing guy and it was interesting listening to him. But he landed squarely on the NCAA Power 5 side with no revenue sharing, no employee status. And it wasn't clear 
to me, really, where he landed on the nationally uniform standard. But obviously, he was there to make a case that supported protective federal legislation and federalizing the name, image, and likeness market. And the fourth witness was Kaylee Mudge, a current student at Florida State University, and she plays on the softball team. And she was the Title IX victim witness, and everything was Title IX. National standard, Title IX. National standard, Title IX. She was very, very good as a witness for the NCAA and Power Five at getting those talking points in. And almost every answer that she gave in response to a question came back to that. So so bravo to her for uh, following the lobbyists' instructions to a T. Then the fifth witness was the athletics director at Washington State University, Pat Chun. And he was presented as the reasonable athletics director. And he wasn't really evangelical in his language and rhetoric. He was pretty measured. And some of the things, you know, that he said tended to lead me to conclude that he does see some of these issues for Power 5 football and men's basketball in a more nuanced way. But where does he land? He lands with, we got to have a national standard and we can't let athletes be employees and uh, revenue sharing is terrible. You know, so they're all landing in the same place. So, so far, we have five witnesses. We have the commissioner of the Patriot League that brings the honor and, and integrity and the academic educational experience integrity to the table, but not relevant to the true issues in Power 5 football and men's basketball. Then we have an African-American university president from a Division II HBCU. They could not be further outside of the discussion from what's really happening with Power 5 football and men's basketball. Then we have a former football player, former athlete, African-American athlete, who gives the NCAA and Power 5 what they want. Then we have white female gender equity victim. And then we have the Power 5 athletics director. And they all had different perspectives, but they all landed in the same place. And there's power in that. And what's interesting, too, is the order of these witnesses. So the last witness and the only witness who was testifying on behalf of athlete interests was Jason Stahl, executive director of the College Football Players Association. And I know Jason. I'm familiar with his work. I really like what he's doing. He had some really important things to say. He, he was speaking really through the lens of the platform that the CFBPA has. And they're trying to get athletes and college football players to to organize and to assert their rights. And his goal was to try to create a pathway so that the football players and and the interests that, that they represent, whatever they may be. And he was very good about saying, look, I don't have a specific recommendation on all these things. It really depends on what the athletes want. And I think that's so, such an important point right now because the athletes don't have a seat at the table. And I guess on that point, I'll also say that this hearing, the eighth hearing since February of 2020, continues the streak We have not yet had a current Power 5 football or men's basketball player testify at any of these hearings. Not one. But Jason talked about his platforms and really emphasizing trying to get some kind of an association or some kind of an organization, whether it's voluntary or perhaps through collective bargaining, to sit down with the Power 5 decision makers and solve the issue that was the elephant in the room. And that was the exploitation of, of Power 5 football men's basketball players. Let's sit down, let's work it out, let's come to an agreement, and then let's move on. And, and then once we take care of that, Jason didn't really put it in these terms. I think this was implicit in what he was saying. Once we solve that issue, then we can look at uh, some of these downstream interests. And he made the point effectively, I think, that there's plenty of money in the system. 
You know, it's something that the in-system stakeholders don't want to talk about. But anyway, so that was the witness list. And one of the ironies of watching this hearing is that all of the witnesses and then the NCAA Power 5 committee members were talking about the level playing field. And we need a single national uniform standard. We need a single uniform standard to level the playing field for all of these athletes and these athletes at HBCUs and the non-revenue athletes at Power 5 schools. And I'm looking at this witness list and I'm thinking, this is a level playing field through the eyes of the NCAA and the Power Five. Six witnesses, five who are, are going to give the NCAA and Power Five everything they want, and one witness arguing in, in response. And I'll just say, Jason, my hat's off to you because I thought you handled that uneven dynamic very, very well. Now I want to go to some of the themes that came up. And really, I predicted this because the, the template hasn't changed and the lobbying strategy hasn't changed. But people aren't looking through the rhetoric to see how consistent it has been. The NCAA and Power Five want the same things today that they wanted when they initiated their campaign in 2019. They want to eliminate external regulatory threats. Uh, preemption takes state laws off the table. No employee takes any pathway to collective bargaining or rights under the Fair Labor Standards Act or workers' compensation benefits. They didn't talk much about antitrust immunity, but as I discussed with that New York Times op-ed from the Notre Dame leaders, in that last episode, they talked about the NCAA's regulatory authority and the need for them to have the flexibility to regulate in these areas. That was a disguised request for antitrust immunity because the only pathway to having that regulatory authority is to be immune from our free competition laws. So they can impose and enforce their compensation limits with impunity. So Bill Arrakis gets to start because he chairs the committee and the Republicans are in control of the House. And he just goes into all of the talking points. And we have a crisis. The same template that the Notre Dame leaders, the, the president of Notre Dame and their athletics director used in that New York Times op-ed, you talk about how important college sports are. And there were all kinds of references. I, th I think when I do a, an episode breaking this down more specifically, I'm going to do a montage of all the references to go Gators, go Knowles, and cross-references. And everybody was yucking it up. And that seems like just meaningless, funny banter. But as I have said in prior episodes, that dynamic among the Power Five schools is so powerful. And on this issue, on this issue of college sports regulation, a, a lot of the traditional alliances may not apply here. And when you look at it, this through Power Five interests, I think you see a lot of momentum towards uh, federal legislation. That's what I heard today. But th their point is, you know, we are, we're in crisis. We have this jewel that we don't want to uh, lose. And only the federal government can solve it. And as I discussed in, in my last episode, they really are drilling down on name, image, and likeness right now because preemption of all these federal protections and immunities, there's more consensus on preemption than any other issue. And that's been building for three years. That's why it's so, so important to go back and look at where this began, track it through the hearings, and see how on an issue-by-issue -issue basis, the thinking has evolved in Congress on both sides of the aisle. And on that single issue, the national standard and uniformity and not having a patchwork we had all the buzzwords. I think there is uh, consensus on that. And there are very few people saying, wait a minute, the federal government just needs to stay the hell out of this. And, you know, Jason made that point. I think that's an important point. He came out and said it. But that was so 
outside of the mainstream of the narrative that, that has been set, that I don't think that argument's taken seriously. And, and that's one of the problems in the way that this entire congressional debate has been framed. We're not going back and challenging the original premises under which some of these asks are based. And the ask for the elimination of states from the regulatory field is a massive ask. I've talked about this time and time again, going back to the very beginning of the podcast. And that is that you have these Republicans from the South, and I'm going to go through a number of them here, who built their political careers on free markets and states' rights, who are now openly asking the federal government to come in and eliminate states from the regulatory fields and eliminate free markets through antitrust immunity. And I think this would have been a golden opportunity to just look at one of those representatives in the eyes and say, sir, do you, do you believe in free markets? Do you believe in the 10th Amendment, in, in the separation of state and federal power? And they can't say no to that because they built their political career on it. And when they say yes, you say, well, then why are you throwing those values down the drain on this issue? I don't think there's an intelligent answer for that. But again, the way this hearing was framed, it was so weighted in, in the witness list and the amount of time that people got to talk that there really wasn't much opportunity to, to offer that kind of counter argument. So the other themes that came up, again, as I predicted, <laughs> were the collegiate model, this model that demands that we steal revenue from football, men's basketball players, and send it downstream to fund all these non-revenue sports that can't pay for themselves. And that was woven into the thinking, even though when you heard Ms. Heppel from the Patriot League and Dr. Abdullah from a D2 HBCU, they were saying that model doesn't work for them because there is no revenue to transfer. And that brings us head on into one of the fundamental flaws of the collegiate model. And that is that there's an implied directive there that can only apply to a very small number of even power five schools. And that is that you have enough revenue from your athletics department only that you can basically have a self-sustaining athletics department that exists in the tiniest fraction of uh, division one schools. Every other school, when you go further down the chain of revenue into programs that generate zero revenue, that's the rule, not the exception. So we're making all these equity arguments like this displacement argument. And this came through Ms. Mudge that, gosh, if uh, football and men's basketball players get paid, then I'm going to lose my scholarship. Gosh, I would love to talk to Ms. Mudge and just kind of explain how this really works and what, what the business model looks like from the P5 down. And she rolled that up in terms of Title IX. So it's a gender equity issue. Again, that powerful political issue. They just beat that into the hearing. The NCAA Power Five witnesses and committee members were all over that, as I predicted, because that's their ultimate immunity shield, their ultimate trump card, because people don't want to take that on. But I think indirectly, implicitly, both Ms. Heppel and, and Dr. Abdullah, they took it on just acknowledging the truth of their revenue situation, which is that it is zero revenue to share. And what I would say to Ms. Mudge is, if you're concerned about the possibility that if we treat football, men's basketball players as free Americans, it's somehow going to affect your interest because there won't be enough money to go around. I think you go to the university president and to the athletics director and say, Look, what's going to happen with our sport and get a commitment from them that they're going to not cut your sport or cut funding for your sport. 
It's not a question of the amount of money. It's where it comes from. And this self-sustaining athletics model myth, this fantasy that only exists at 40 or 50 schools in the Power Five, is the exception. And at every other school, the university, the broader university, has to decide how much it's going to spend on athletics and what, what kind of a priority it is. But Ms. Mudge's sport and her scholarship are only going to go away if the university says we're not going to pay for women's sports, what does that say about Title IX? That's the real Title IX issue here. And that is the decision that 98% of schools in the NCAA through Division I, Division II, and Division III have to make every year. How do we allocate our university money, our general university money? Dr. Abdullah said that the athletics department at Virginia State is funded exclusively through student fees because they don't have any revenue to, to support the budget. So, That's the reality for 98% of the schools in the NCAA, yet we are creating the skies falling narrative based on a model that can only exist at 40 or 50 of the richest institutions in the world, in the world. And there's no reason why they can't pay for or subsidize the athletics department if not doing that is going to somehow compromise opportunities for female and quote-unquote Olympic sport athletes. And as most of the witnesses noted on these Title IX questions, Title IX is Title IX. You have to comply with it. You find a way to comply with it. And if the uh, university says, well, we're going to comply with it by cutting Olympic sports and just Get, getting out of uh, the non-revenue sport business, that's a university issue, not a football and men's basketball issue. And we need to be talking to the stakeholders on the university side about their commitment to women's sports and non-revenue sports. So let me talk now about the committee members and how this hearing operated. And so Mr. Bill Rakis, he, he led off with, with his propaganda and then He turns it over to Jan Schakowsky, a Democrat from Illinois, who was the chair of that subcommittee in 2021 for those hearings. Now she's the ranking member, and she gets the prerogative of going second. Honestly, and I I saw this in the hearing in 2021, it was painful to listen to her. I mean, it was really painful. She doesn't understand these issues. She's not engaged in these issues. I don't think she's invested in these issues. And she was trying to read from a script. Her staff apparently had prepared a script. And it, it, it was one of those moments where you just say, just, just stop talking and you know close it out and move on to the next person. But I think when you look at the compare and contrast between Bill Arrakis's opening statement and then Schakowsky's, a couple of things come through. And I'll just say, Bill Arrakis is not a silver-tongued orator. He uh, isn't going to win any public speaking contests. But he was organized. He understood the issues well enough to be able to frame them in the way that the lobbyists and lawyers want them to be framed and and the Power Five and the NCAA want them to be framed. And he's motivated. What we heard from Ms. Schakowsky, and she's supposed to be the lead voice on that committee for athlete interests, or or at least uh, to challenge the Republican side and the NCAA Power Five side. She simply isn't capable of doing that. And I I think that reflects what I have seen in these eight hearings. And I have broken these things down. And when I hear people talking about these hearings and they haven't listened to a hearing or read a witness statement or synthesized the the themes, it, it just makes me crazy. And there's so much of that out there. And there are a lot of misconceptions. But one of the most important themes from all of those hearings is that the Republicans are motivated. They are motivated from Roger Wicker and Tommy Tuberville on the Senate side to Gus Bilirakis and Anthony Gonzalez before him. Those people are motivated. 
And in any discussion about values-based issues, motivation matters. And we simply haven't seen that same kind of commitment on the Democrat side from anybody, perhaps with the exception of Chris Murphy, maybe Richard Blumenthal, but he's kind of been a little conservative, lowercase c, uh, on some of his advocacy as well. So we have a complete mismatch in terms of the motivation and power of the advocacy. And then we go to uh, Kathy Rogers, who is the head of the overall committee. She goes next, and that's a prerogative. It's protocol. And she was a Title IX stump speech right down the line. She's a Republican from Washington. Then we go to Frank Pallone, who is the ranking member of the big energy and commerce committee. So he's in the minority. He's a Democrat from New Jersey. And I'm listening to Pallone, and I'm like, my God, what? <laughs> Whose side are you on? <laughs> you know? uh, and he proudly invokes Tom McMillan, the head of Lead One, who was at the hearing. And I've talked quite a bit about McMillan in this podcast. Lead One is a trade association. It is a 501c6 organization devoted to promoting the interests of Power Five athletics directors. The membership includes the group of five. But it is really about promoting the interests of Power Five athletics directors. And he has been lobbying for several years now on behalf of the people who are benefiting from the exploitation model in Power Five football and men's basketball. Pallone is going on and on because McMillan used to be a congressman. I think he was there in the late 80s and crossed over into the early 90s. And, and Pallone described him as an athlete's rights advocate for crying out loud. So when I heard that, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, these people, I don't know if that was said out of ignorance, you know, and of course, McMillan's there, and I think Pallone wants to do the collegiality thing and all that stuff, but if I'm Pallone and I understand what Lead One's doing, I am not sure that I give such a shout out to McMillan without acknowledging that he may be on the wrong side of the fence on these issues, or that he has a conflict of interest if he purports to be an athlete's rights advocate, and he is not. He's tried to, he tries to portray himself as the statesman that rises above partisanship and all that stuff. No, he is a paid advocate for uh, Power Five athletics directors. So right off the bat, with the four leaders of the overall committee and then the subcommittee having spoken, it's really hard to identify who's making the case for the athletes, quite frankly. And that carried into the statements of some of the committee members and then some of their questioning. So there were a total of, by my count, 17 members of the subcommittee who attended that hearing. There were 12 Republicans and five Democrats. And the Republicans were all reading from the same script, which uh, I think underscores my point that the lobbying campaign on the NCAA Power Five side, which is a partisan lobbying campaign, and it has been from the beginning, is very well organized, very sophisticated. They have been priming this pump for three years, and these Republicans were on script. They were on task. They were on point. They had allocated the subject matter areas in a way that they covered all of the talking point bases. And when we got into uh, transfers and we got into collectives, and what's so funny about that is inadvertently, I think, Ms. Mudge, who is the FSU softball player, 
she was going on and on about how wonderful Florida State did things with name, image, and likeness. They provided great support and great education. And the Florida State Collective was the best thing since sliced bread. And then we had a similar dynamic with several of the other NCAA Power Five Republican witnesses. So Dr. Abdullah, when he was talking about how Virginia State handled their name, image, and likeness issues, he was saying, we have a great program. We have great transparency. We have a great educational framework for it. So we're doing it the right way. We heard the same thing from Ms. Heppel. Oh, the Patriot League. Yeah, we've got a really good program in place. And we teach our athletes how to handle their nil issues. And we're doing it the right way. And then we heard the same thing from Pat Chun. The athletics director at Washington State. Oh, yeah, boy. We're doing it right here on Name, Image, and Likeness. And we have this really sophisticated educational program. And we are really making sure that these athletes can get the resources they need to exploit their name, image, and likeness opportunities and blah, blah, blah. So Washington State is doing it the right way. So all these stakeholders who are coming to testify in favor of having the federal government take over the name, image, and likeness market are basically saying that at their institution or at their conference, everything's great and they're doing it the right way. And I'm listening to that and I'm thinking, is anybody on the on the Democrat side going to pick up on that and say, then what's the problem? Because one of the arguments they were making for preemption and national uniformity was that we aren't getting things done right at the institutional level because athletes need education, they need transparency, they need support, and these collectives are really the problem here. But that's not what the witnesses were saying. The witnesses who were in the best position to speak to that, really. But there was no Democrat who picked up on that. And I think that goes to the motivation issue. How carefully are they paying attention to what's going on And is their state of knowledge sufficient to be able to make that connection and make that argument? And the answer at this hearing was no, (laughs) it wasn't. So I want to first start with the Republicans. And there were a handful of Republicans that were just mean. I mean, mean mean-spirited and condescending. And A couple of them asked some uh, questions of Jason Stahl that they thought were gotcha questions. <laughs> and, and he came back and very calmly turned it to, to, to what he wanted to say and, and did that very effectively. But the hostility here is unbelievable. And I can't remember which one it was. There was a, a Republican on the committee that was talking about the Northwestern case and these unions, you know, these unions, without really understanding, I think, the, the purpose of the NLRA and Section 1, which is to promote freedom of association, freedom of speech, freedom of contract, choosing your own representative, democratic principles. But that's not the way these people see the world. And then we had the usual suspects from the South. We had Jeff Duncan from South Carolina. Let's see. We had Neil Dunn from Florida, another Florida guy. We had Rick Allen from Georgia. We had Diana Harshbarger from Tennessee. She was a little bit out there. You'd see Cat. Kamek from Florida. And, I mean, lots of Florida, 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 Florida. And then we had, what was this guy's name? Carter. I didn't get his first name. Republican from Georgia. He was a piece of work too. But when you listen to those people, it's like you're watching a congressional hearing from the 1950s or 60s. I mean, it's just, it was painful. But I want to talk about the Democrats, so of these five Democrats. So I talked about Schakowsky. She just doesn't understand the issues, not an effective advocate. Then we had Kathy Castor, a Democrat from Florida, who sounded just like 
Gus Bilorakis. And it, she was on the Title IX train, but she landed in the same place. Then we had Darren Soto, a Democrat from Florida. And honestly, I didn't get the sense that he was really all on board with the athletes' rights. And one of the reasons I think that there was a lack of passion is that these issues weren't framed in terms of values. They weren't framed in terms of the real exploitation in the business model, which is the academic and financial exploitation of profit athletes in football. I mean, it's basketball who were disproportionately African-American. That barely saw the light of day. And let's see, I've talked about Pallone. Now I want to finish with Lori Trahan for crying out loud. Again, listening to her, she might as well have had an R on her chest because where she landed was, in my judgment, was, yes, we need federal intervention. And she's okay with preemption, apparently. But her thing was Title IX. She did not speak the language of athletes' rights. She did not speak the language of fairness for the laborers who underwrite this entire industry. That's Because I don't think that's the way she sees the world. And I said in that last episode, and I have said in prior occasions, having listened to, to her advocacy, she's a wild card. She's a yellow caution flag. She's kind of like Maria Cantwell, the chair of the uh, Senate Commerce Committee, a very powerful position because commerce has original jurisdiction over sports matters. Trahan has a role here that's really important because the Democrats on this committee who don't know jack squat about the issues are deferring to Trahan as the expert. <laughs> and the expert, quite frankly, isn't doing a whole lot for uh, the athletes. So I'm going to kind of leave it at that with the testimony and the hearing. And I'll come back and really dive into it. Now I want to talk about the empty chair in, in that committee room. And that is the NCAA and Power Five's extraordinarily powerful lobbyists. And as I was watching this hearing and taking notes, I had, I had people texting me and all that stuff. I had someone send me something that they received from an NCAA insider. And apparently yesterday, March 28th, the NCAA Office of Government Relations sent out an email to all three divisions, to all institutions, and that email was titled, ALERT in full caps, ALERT in full caps. So we have the NCAA alert. I don't know if it came across their their phone, you know, like, like an amber alert or a silver alert. But there was a sense of, you better pay attention to this. And then it says, March 29th, Congressional Hearing on College Sports. And this short memo directs people to listen and then to look at the division-specific information that the NCAA and their Office of Government Relations put, put together to essentially ask the members to engage in direct lobbying and to get the talking points out into the discussion. And there are links to various documents and I just want to go through the link to the Division I Congressional Engagement Information. And I talked in the last episode about how coordinated this campaign is, and it operates at multiple levels. And at the communications level, at the messaging level, it, it is a force. It is like a presidential campaign. And there's a network and an infrastructure in the NCAA and the Power Five to get these talking points out instantaneously to everybody so they're all reading from the same page. But the breadth of it is just stunning, really. And what I'm going to give you is just a, a window into that. And it ties back into, you can't look at any one thing in isolation in the timeline. You have to look at the progression of the timeline, things that happen at or about the same time. 
So we had Baker making the tour on government intervention at the beginning of March. And there was an article in the Wall Street Journal that tried to walk back from that. That was a misleading narrative. And I may talk about that in a, in a separate episode. He really didn't say anything different than what he said at his State of the Association speech on January 12th. He just said, we need to own our destiny to the extent that we can. And in politics, it's about timing. And I think that was a tell that they're waiting until 2024. I may talk about a, a little bit about the timing of these other legal and regulatory pathways uh, on the athlete's rights side. But you had the, the Baker thing, then you had the New York Times op-ed that I talked about in the last episode. You had the hearing, and almost immediately after the hearing, you had a press release from Charlie Baker claiming victory. This is very well coordinated, but this amateurism alert, what we'll call that, the amateurism alert from the mothership, the Office of Government Relations, is titled, NCAA Member Congressional Talking Points, and it's divided into four categories. First, college sports today. Second, the changing and challenging landscape. Third, congressional action. This document is designed to tell all institutional stakeholders across the NCAA landscape how to think, how to speak, and how to engage. And this is the very existence of this document is an anathema to the values of higher education. Don't form your own conclusions. Don't watch this hearing and think about things that may come up that challenge some of your assumptions. You have to buy in to the party line. It's all or nothing. You're 100% with us or you're 100% against us. And we're going to control the message, damn it. And you're going to be part of it because if you're not a team player. And that is the climate and culture of college sports and its intersection with higher education. And it is just really disturbing because I think this says as much about higher education as it does about college sports. But I want to go through some of these bullet points. So in this first section, college sports today, it's the 500,000 student athletes, the conflation argument. That's bullet point number one. We want to conflate the interests of Division Two and Division Three and lower level Division One with the uh, Power Five profit sports so that the, the interests of people who really have absolutely no relevance to the business model can swallow up the interests of this small group of revenue-producing athletes whose labors underwrite this entire system. It, this is really a, a form of the utilitarian argument I talked about in the last episode. Let's worry about the interests of the masses, and we have a mass of, of athletes here, not this few little, these few little people over here who are making noise and causing trouble, and they don't understand how good they've got it. All the delegitimization narratives, that's the theme here. And then they talk about graduation rates. We want to talk, pump up how great we're doing academically. And then the, they tout the improvement in, in Black and Hispanic graduation rates. And then they invoke this suggestion that, look, we're taking care of this on our own. We're making changes on our own. We just need the space to breathe to do that without interference from all these outsiders, all these agitators, the NLRB or a federal court or state legislatures. These people, they're just troublemakers. And they talk about the work of this transformation committee and this quote-unquote, new holistic model for student-athletes. That's in full cap, so it is a term of art. You really should listen to my episodes on the work of this transformation committee. I don't have the number of the episodes uh, right in front of me. Maybe I'll put it in the show notes. That new holistic model for student-athletes did not exist 
in over a year of the Transformation Committee's work until it released its final report. And it's because their final report was so bad and offered so little that they had to come up with some shiny object to, to justify all the time that they, they put into it. All right, now let's look at the next section, the changing and challenging landscape. And then they're talking about the threats. This is where they want to get people scared. And many of the biggest issues facing college sports are the result of legal actions and political threats that the NCAA lacks the clarity to address right now. That statement is a false statement. There is nothing preventing the NCAA from enforcing its own rules. And when you look honestly at the legal landscape post-O'Bannon, post-Austin, there is nothing in those decisions that would prevent the NCAA from trying to regulate on matters that are not tethered to education. And I've I've talked about that, but that's a cop-out. It's a big, fat cop-out. And then they go through all of these examples and recent legal actions, such as Austin, have clouded the NCAA's ability to provide clear guidelines to regulate college sports nationally. False. In the past few years, name, image, and likeness compensation has inspired over 30 disparate state laws with little transparency and no accountability. That's a false statement to the extent it suggests that those state laws have any impact because none of them have been enforced. That was the other piece of this hearing that was completely missing. They're asking for federal intervention, but they don't say how it's going to be enforced at the national level. How's the federal government? Are we going to have the federal nil police? I did an episode on that after that September 2021 hearing. It's ridiculous the way that they talk about the enforcement piece. And they didn't talk about it at all in this hearing. And they don't acknowledge that not a single institution, not a single conference and the NCAA, none of them have enforced a single name, image, and likeness rule after July 1st of 2021. More lawsuits against the NCAA are filed every year. I'm not, I don't want to see the data on that. And then they say, these lawsuits, often relitigating previously decided issues, cost millions of dollars that could otherwise be spent on student-athlete support. A couple things there. They're referring to the House case, and they're saying that House is O'Bannon 2.0 and that we've been there, done that. They filed a motion to dismiss on that ground, and, and that motion was denied, so the case goes forward. But this notion of spending money on litigation and throwing it away, and they also conveniently omit that they're spending tens of millions of dollars on lobbyists and public relations PR firms, spin doctors, to manipulate Congress into ending the athletes' rights movement. That, those expenditures are A-OK, but defending a lawsuit challenging your un-American compensation limits is besieging and frivolous litigation. Then they go to the patchwork. We heard, we heard patchwork. Then they go into the no-employee rant. And they have a couple of bullet points on athletes becoming employees. And if one group of uh, athletes becomes employees, then all student athletes are going to be asking to be employees. And it's all sky is falling stuff. Then they say this, and again, this goes back to the the collegiate model issue and the truth of the uh, revenue landscape uh, across the NCAA. They say this, given that the vast majority of athletics programs cost far more to operate than they generate in revenue, in an employment-based model, maintaining a full roster of programs would be challenging even at the Division I level and potentially devastating for Divisions II and III. So they acknowledge that the The overwhelming majority of schools don't generate any revenue. They lose money, which means that the university has to pay for those out of general university operating expenses. And then after all that propaganda, after a page and a half of uh, propaganda that is hostile 
to revenue producing athlete interest, they put this in as a single bullet point at the end of that section. And they say, a small but important percentage of student athletes compete in sports that generate significant revenue for their universities. And then the bullet point under that, with Congress's assistance, we are open to exploring various mechanisms to potentially address these student athletes' unique economic interests in a way that is fair, equitable, and sustainable. So they throw in this bullet point to make it appear as if they actually acknowledge the value that the revenue-producing athletes bring in. But let's look at the language that they use in that bullet point. And it's a small but important percentage, you know, with Congress's assistance. So first of all, Congress has to do this. The NCAA is not going to do it on its own. And, and they've proven the truth. Same for the Power Five. We are open to exploring, open to exploring, okay? They'll think about it. Various mechanisms to potentially address, potentially address these student athletes' economic interests in a way that is, in a way that is fair, equitable, and sustainable, okay? So hold, hold that thought because now we're going into what they want, the ask, congressional action. And, and again, this is the bottom line talking points memo sent out to all NCAA institutions. Here's what they say. Congress is the only entity that can stabilize college sports legal environments so that the NCAA can provide student athletes with a fair, inclusive, and fulfilling environment. Two bullet points on that. As existing laws are currently being interpreted and applied, we cannot effectively regulate subjects like NIL and the employment status of student athletes. As, as existing laws are currently being interpreted and applied, yeah, by you. <laughs> By the NCAA, you're refusing to enforce your own rules or to come up with an interpretation and application of those rules that allows you to, to get this nil market that, that you think is so out of control, under control, but you refuse to do it. The second bullet point, soon we'll not only see nil regulations differ wildly by uh, state by state, but potentially student athletes' employment status as well. No, that's not happening. E even the California revenue sharing bill, which they are screaming about as this existential threat, and that got flushed down the memory hole because of gender equity pushback, but that would not have uh, transformed the athletes in California into employees. It didn't address the employee issue. It was simply a revenue sharing bill. And on the employment front, you're going to see far more states more likely to pass state laws that say that athletes, as a matter of law, cannot be employees as opposed to being employees. And then they go to the bottom line ask. And these things, we know what they are, the three death provisions. And these three things make a mockery of this bullet point above where they say that a small but important percentage of student athletes compete in sports that generate significant revenue. So they do this token acknowledgement that the revenue athletes exist and they have an interest to protect. And then they demand federal protections and immunities that would make it impossible for those athletes to recognize their unique value and their unique economic interests. So let's start with the list. There are four of them. To transform college sports without losing their essential qualities, the NCAA has four narrow but critically important congressional legislative needs. One, nil protections for student athletes, enhance safeguards and provide resources for student athletes to mitigate the risk, risk of bad actors in the nil market and ensure that contracts and commitments are honored. They put that number one. That's not their primary concern. Two, three, and four are really what they want. Two, special status of student athletes. 
affirm the current and unique relationship between universities and student-athletes rather than student-athletes as employees of an institution. The no-employee provision, you take out the NLRA, you take out the FLSA, you take out workers' compensation benefits. Number three, safe harbor from select liability complaints. Identify selected areas where the NCAA needs safe harbor from legal complaints to effectively oversee college sports nationally. That is your antitrust immunity, and it is not narrow. This narrow limitation is ridiculous. They want these provisions to be as broad as possible, to provide as much protection as possible, and to limit the revenue-producing athletes' rights as much as possible. And that's true with the Wicker Bill, the Moran Bill, the NCAA Bill, the Gonzalez-Cleaver Bill, the Shabbat Bill. Every single one of those bills has extraordinarily broad death provisions that would end the athletes' rights movement. Then uh, number four, and the one that was the subject of this hearing today, preemption of state law. Codify that federal law preempts state law in certain areas, such as name, image, and likeness. I went through that Roger Wicker preemption provision, and, and that's the law that the Power Five are now holding up as the, the gold standard and what they want in federal legislation. That preemption provision is not limited to name, image, and likeness. It would apply to any compensation limits, including but not limited to name, image, and likeness. It's just dishonest as it can be. But, you know, looking at this, they say they want to transform college sports. These provisions would transform college sports all the way back to the 1950s. And that's exactly what these people want. And then there's one last section that's boxed in. And it says, to engage, motivate, and collaborate with Congress, the NCAA has initiated and established a Board of Governors Subcommittee on Congressional Engagement and Action. Through its engagements with Congress, we aim to push for greater support in areas where the NCAA currently lacks the ability to self-impose changes on its own. Second bullet point, our goal is to make clear that without federal legislation, no entity can effectively monitor and serve the needs of student-athletes nationally. Think about that. Now, first of all, that Subcommittee on Congressional Engagement and Action, I talked quite a bit about that in my episodes on the Transformation Committee because they hide behind that. All, this new holistic athlete model that has all these benefits they claim athletes will get through the work of the Transformation Committee. When you read the fine print in the Transformation Committee's final report, all of those benefits are contingent upon the NCAA getting help from Congress through the work of this uh, subcommittee on congressional engagement and action. It was a massive bait and switch. And, and again, nobody's done the work to actually read the report, to follow the committee's work over the last year, to read the minutes, to synthesize it and call them out. I've done that. It's right there. It's sitting right there for you if you want to listen to it. But what's interesting too about this is that they say no entity can effectively monitor and serve the interests of student athletes nationally unless we get this federal protection and immunity, which is basically saying that the NCAA is a worthless entity and the Power Five conferences are worthless entities as regulators, as enforcement regulators. And if that's the case, if, if that's how they really feel about their regulatory authority, then let's just tear it all down and start from scratch before we get Congress involved. And then the last thing I'll note about this subcommittee, the Board of Governors Subcommittee on Congressional Engagement and, and Action, guess who's on that committee? It's a very small committee, and you have these very uh, small number of decision makers at the NCAA now post-constitutional makeover, including Greg Sankey. Greg Sankey 
is on that committee. And this, that, that's going to be the Greg Sankey show. Uh, and I want to close out my discussion of this memo by returning to the values issues. You have the higher education issue where they're telling people to suspend their critical thinking, buy into the propaganda, and then spout it out. But the most important thing is that what they're advocating for here makes a mockery of basic American freedoms and values. And, and they land with a utilitarian argument. We're going to throw the football and basketball players in Power Five under the bus for the benefit of all these stakeholders who are overwhelmingly white and compared well off. It's, it's just an immoral business model. And this legislation that they're proposing targets those athletes, and it is a civil rights issue. And uh, I want to point out that when I was going through this memo, this, this uh, lobbying propaganda, I was looking at all these bullet points, and I counted 22 bullet points and recommendations that all except one, go to basically eliminating the athletes' rights movement. And they do that through patently false and misleading narratives that should be exposed through critical examination and analysis within the very institutions that received this memo. And there could not be a better statement or example of how little regard these institutional stakeholders have for the African-American laborers and football, men's basketball, than the fact that of those 22 bullet points, only one acknowledged, even acknowledged, that these revenue-producing athletes contributed anything to the system. And it was full of weasel words, conditional weasel words. And then immediately following that were these three un-American death provisions, antitrust immunity, preemption, athletes can't be employees, that would make it impossible for these athletes to be treated as free Americans. The last thing I want to point out about this alert that they sent out, they also had a document titled NCAA Schools and Subcommittee Members Districts. They, they went through and they uh, looked at where all of the representatives on this uh, subcommittee that uh, held this hearing today, what districts they were in, and then they cross-referenced any NCAA school that was in that district, and they provided that information, every institution in the NCAA, and directed them to contact their representative to make the points that are in this talking point memo. And there's another big problem there, and that is that the NCAA is a 501c3 education nonprofit. They're not supposed to be engaged in this kind of political advocacy. But I think if you look honestly at the way that the NCAA has used its megaphone through its website, through its uh, high-powered public relations firm that they've paid at least $40 million to since 2015, through their, their advocates, th they are using that megaphone to lobby. And all of their propaganda has been directed to manipulating the public narrative to get people to buy into the way that they see the business model and the interests of the various stakeholders. And there could not be more perfect evidence of that than what's contained in this alert memo. This is a disgrace. It's a disgrace to higher education. And it is an affront to basic American values. And I guess I'll just make one last point. I think that the 
NCAA and Power 5 and their lobbyists are trying to go for preemption only. If they get that one thing, they've crossed an important Rubicon because Congress has traditionally been very reluctant to get into the substance of regulation of college sports. But the reason that's so important is that when you look at these other threats that are out there, the uh, NLRB charge now pending on the West Coast against uh, USC, the Pac-12, and the NCAA, you have Johnson's suit in the Third Circuit under the Fair Labor Standards Act, which requires employee status. You can't have benefits under that law unless you're an employee. So are they employees? That's the issue on the table right now. And then you have this house suit, which is a name, image, and likeness suit. And when you look at the timeline for for all of those, they extend well into 2024. I actually, I went back, it'd been a while since I'd been in the house files. I went back into the electronic vault to look at uh, the activity recently. And just a couple days ago, the district court judge in that case issued a scheduling order and district court judges do that, particularly in these really complicated class action suits. And there's so many moving parts. You want to try to have a schedule and stick to it, which they rarely do. You know, Things never go according to plan. But the, the judge, Judge Wilkin, who also had O'Bannon and Austin, she set a trial date for January 27th of 2025. January 27th of 2025, at the earliest. And that's after the 24 election, after a new Congress is seated. And a lot of people are speculating that there's a decent chance that uh, looking at the Senate map and the House map, and who knows what's going to happen with the White House, but there could be a, a unified Congress or a unified federal government in favor of the Republicans. If that happens, it's game, set, match. And when you look at the potential pathway and the appeal options and the procedural machinations, both in this Johnson suit in the Third Circuit, then this NLRB pathway on the West Coast with USC, those likewise could go well into 2024. So all of these existential threats, the boogeymen that the NCAA and Power Five are pointing to here as the basis for immediate congressional action are really remote threats in terms of the practical impact that they may have on the NCAA and Power Five. And who knows how those decision makers are going to view the issues and where that's going to land on, on the law and any potential remedy. Actually, the NCAA and Power Five are really laying the foundation. That's one of the reasons I've told people who think that uh, there's no way that there's going to be protected federal uh, legislation. I said, you're not looking at the big picture here. You're not thinking about this the way that they think about it. You have to do that. If you're going to do a scouting report you know, on the opposing team, you need to know what they're going to do, how they think. And the NCAA and Power Five are in it for the long game. You don't hire Brownstein Hyatt as the NCAA did or Aiken Gump as the SEC did. I can't remember the name of the powerful lobbying firm that Notre Dame has or the other Power Five conferences. But you're not in that game to just try to get a quick hit. You're in it for the long run. This is the long game. And they started this in 2019. And I think what you saw today was perfect evidence of the progress that they have made that has been invisible to the public, unless you've been paying attention to to this congressional campaign the way that I have. So I think I'm going to close it out with that. And I will come back at some point with a more detailed analysis of of this testimony. But I I thought this was not a good day for athletes because there's much more buy-in to congressional involvement, at least on preemption than I think most people uh, have understood. And I didn't really see any meaningful pushback from the Democrats on that committee, with the exception of the representative from New York, who was the only one who came out and said what needed to be said about the business model and how racialized it is. And we just don't want to have that discussion. And the NCAA and Power Five have been so, so good at steering stakeholders away from that painful truth. All right. I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.